studying and working in science, technology, engineering, and math, also known as STEM, provides a pathway to profitable, stable careers at the epicenter of emerging goods and services in the American economy. However, these pathways can be harder for some than for others. Last month, AEI published STEM Voices, the Experiences of Women and Minorities in Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math Occupations. The report, which builds on an earlier survey of STEM workers that pointed out strong disparities in work satisfaction depending on race and gender, weaves together stories from 25 qualitative interviews with women and minority STEM workers. These workers tell a story of an education, training, and career pipeline still troubled by issues of, in many cases, inadvertent exclusion and disparate treatment. From a shortage of minority STEM instructors, the challenges women and minorities face in being accepted and included in fields historically led by whites. Legal changes banning discrimination have done much to prevent bias against women and minorities in employment, yet subtler forms of bias remain that can block the pathway to education, training, and careers. To elevate and contextualize this work in a broader policy discussion, I invited Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee of the Brookings Institution, along with Lou Dong from the United Negro College Fund, to participate in a virtual event along with Ann Kim, the principal researcher on STEM Voices, and myself. This hardly working episode will rebroadcast that event which focused on the importance of mentorship, talent acquisition and development, and leveraging both old and new methods of socialization at work and in school to overcome barriers to entry and advancement in STEM fields. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining the American Enterprise Institute for Public Policy Research for our virtual event STEM Voices, Women and Minorities in the STEM Workforce. My name is Brent Orell. I'm a senior fellow here at AEI, and I do research on workforce development and criminal justice reform. AEI is a nonprofit public policy think tank dedicated to defending human dignity, expanding human potential, and building a freer and safer world. The work of our scholars and staff advance is rooted in our belief in liberal democracy, free enterprise, American strength and global leadership, solidarity with those at the periphery of our society and a pluralistic entrepreneurial culture. In today's event, we'll be exploring some of the challenges to human dignity in the American workplace and how we can, as a culture, express greater solidarity with those who find themselves at times at the periphery of our society and economy. In today's economy, STEM careers are some of the most lucrative and in-demand occupations. The median salary for STEM workers is more than double the median salary of U.S. workers overall. For this reason, careers in STEM are often identified as, quote, the great equalizer for those climbing the socioeconomic ladder. Indeed, STEM careers offer a way for workers to comfortably support themselves and their families while contributing to, in meaningful ways, our technologically advanced society. To better understand this vital area of the U.S. workforce, in July of 2020, AEI surveyed over 1,300 Americans working in STEM occupations. What we uncovered was not a simple or straightforward path to workforce success in STEM, 
Rather, we found two very different worlds of STEM work. For some, chiefly men from white or Asian backgrounds, STEM occupations are experiences open, supportive, and with a good deal of opportunity for professional growth. For others, again, chiefly women and racial minorities, we found the STEM career landscape is often fraught with obstacles. While women make up over half of the college-educated workforce, they account for only a third of STEM workers. Minority workers are similarly underrepresented. This is especially perplexing, given that for decades, increasing diversity in STEM education and careers has been a top public policy priority. And once female and minority students enter STEM professions, they experience lower rates of job retention and promotion, especially for senior management. If, as the wage and income data clearly tell us, STEM jobs provide some of the best opportunities for securing competitive wages and professional growth, what's deterring women and minorities from flourishing in this field? To better understand the obstacles uncovered in our 2020 survey, our main speaker today, Ann Kim, conducted interviews with 25 of the survey participants between November 2020 and March 2021. These testimonials unearth startling personal insights into the career trajectories, barriers, and experiences of diverse individuals in the STEM field. I believe this report is timely and important reading. As American society and its demographics continue to shift, we will have to pay more attention to integrating diverse populations into the workplace while grappling with the challenges posed by an excessive and sometimes burdensome wokeness that disrupts social cohesion by encouraging us to think the worst of each other rather than looking for ways to build bridges of understanding and inclusion. My own reading of the survey data and the individual accounts contained in STEM voices is that somewhere along the line, we went from attempting to achieve a colorblind society and workforce to one that is simply blind, where those who are striving to make a contribution have difficulty being recognized and included in their workplaces with the downstream effects that you might expect on job satisfaction and personal well-being. Our laws have done much to eliminate the kind of explicit bias that characterized American society in earlier eras. Now the burden shifts to industry and businesses as they seek to build more inclusive workforces. Kim's work broadens and deepens our understanding of the blockages and bottlenecks in the STEM pipeline from initial barriers to entry to ongoing career difficulties. Her interviews help encapsulate these stories and improve our understanding of workplace and social realities, giving us a foundation from which to consider what kinds of cultural changes and policy solutions might enhance opportunity for women and minorities in STEM. It's my honor and pleasure to be joined today by Ann Kim to discuss her findings. Ann is a contributing editor at Washington Monthly and author of Abandoned, America's Lost Youth and the Crisis of Disconnection. We're also joined by Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee from the Brookings Institution and Lou Dong from the United Negro College Fund. At the Brookings Institution, Dr. Lee 
is the director of the Center for Technology Innovation and serves as the co-editor-in-chief of Tech Tank. Lou is the principal director of Fund2 Foundation, the UNCF STEM program, and the HBCU Innovative Commercialization and Entrepreneurship Unit at UNCF. I'm now going to turn it over to Anne to walk us through her findings uh, as they were published in STEM Voices. After she's finished, we'll be turning to Nicole and to Lou to offer their responses and then engage in conversation among the panelists to explore these themes further. And now I'm going to turn it over to Anne Kim. Thank you, Brent. Um, first of all, I really want to thank Brent and the AEI team for the chance to work on this project and to be here today. Uh, what I really appreciated about this research was the opportunity to talk to people across the country about their jobs. You know, so much of the Washington policy discussion happens in the abstract, and it's really pretty divorced from the uh, on the ground experiences of the lives that are impacted by what happens here in DC. So. What I am hoping with this research is to inject a different kind of evidence for policymakers to consider. And, and I, I hope that this leads to perhaps somewhat different conclusions or solutions, or at least maybe a, a richer understanding of why this problem of diversity in STEM has been so tough to solve. So bear with me here. So to set the stage, uh, I'm going to, to uh, play an excerpt from one of my interviews with a woman named Carla. So Carla is a black woman who has a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering. She's also got an MBA. She was an excellent student and she landed a plum job at one of the nation's largest computer and IT companies in Texas after she graduated. She's also unfortunately no longer working in STEM. When I spoke with her, she was working as the HR officer at her cousin's law firm in Atlanta. And this is what she said when I asked her why she left. I thought that I would have more opportunities for growth, mm -hmm. but what I found was um, every year having to fight for my pay increase. Mm -hmm. And I honestly felt like it was because I was a woman. Um, I had probably one other woman on my team at various times. And it just seemed like the men weren't having the same problems we were having. Staff meetings, trying to convey what the client said, it seemed like the management and the other engineers just kind of brushed it off. And I don't know if it was because I was black or a woman or because I was new, but I felt like at some point they weren't listening to me. So, Carla's experience is actually pretty typical for the women and minority workers I spoke with. And unfortunately, it's also pretty common more broadly. As Brent noted, many women and minorities do not find STEM to be an easy field to succeed in. That was a finding from AEI's 2020 survey and other surveys find the same. Uh, just one in five women say it's easy to quote, thrive in tech. One in four regret their choice of major. Half of non-white workers think that Black people have a much tougher time in STEM fields than whites. A lot of the solutions for STEM's diversity crisis have been kind of aimed at fixing the pipeline, that is growing the number of women and minorities focused on STEM in K-12 and in higher ed. But I think it's pretty clear that the pipeline is not the only problem. Carla made it through the pipeline. 
It's what happened afterwards that pushed her out of the field. So yes, we definitely need better schools and low-income and minority neighborhoods. We need more equitable access to advanced science and math classes like AP, but we're also gonna to need to tackle the qualitative barriers that ultimately limit opportunities for success in STEM if you're a woman or if you are not white. And those I think are the barriers that this report helps reveal. So quick note on um, methodology. I interviewed 25 current and former workers in STEM. Most had participated in the 2020 AEI survey of workers with STEM degrees. 13 women, 12 men, 19 were female, racial minorities, or both. And I wanna note that this is a really highly educated group of the female and minority workers, all but one had bachelor's degrees. 11 had advanced degrees, including two with PhDs. Of the six white men I interviewed, five had bachelor's degrees, two had advanced degrees. And I spoke to people at all ranges of their careers. So recent graduates, mid-level professionals, and a couple recent retirees. Here's a big takeaway. The contrast in experiences between women and workers of color on the one hand and white men on the other really could not be more stark. In the report, I would call it barriers versus ramps. An overwhelming majority of the women and minority workers felt they'd faced pretty major obstacles in their work environment. They reported the lack of mentors, few opportunities for advancement, denial of promotions, pay raises, stereotyping, and for the women, not a lot of sympathy for work-life challenges if they were trying to raise a family. The white men, on the other hand, reported few or no barriers to their success. Many of them reported that they were being taken under the wing of mentors and bosses. Uh, some of them got their educations paid for and they were steered toward new opportunities and promotions. One man told me that he was in an entry-level programming job this white man at the airline where he worked when he was kind of plucked away by his supervisors for a special assignment, uh, which turned out to make his career. He ended up rising through the ranks there. That kind of serendipity was a really common factor in a lot of the stories I heard. The other stark contrast, which I'll address a little bit later on, is the difference in perceptions about the difficulties women and minority workers face in tech. So despite what women and workers of color felt about their experiences, white male workers really didn't seem to think that bias was a pervasive phenomenon at all. On the contrary, they thought it was kind of over with or overblown. That disconnect in and of itself, I think, as I'll talk about later, is a pretty significant obstacle to changing the culture of STEM. So, but first back to this concept of barriers versus ramps. So many women and minority workers I mentioned felt pretty hindered and frustrated uh, on the job. The probably the number one complaint that I heard was social isolation, being the only one, the only black person, the only Asian woman, the only Hispanic. Uh, I guess on the token Hispanic, that's Laura M. You can see her quote there, who was a graduate student in data science I interviewed. Many times I feel like I'm the lone representative of my race and gender. That was Sarah. She was a black woman and a chemist who, by the way, had a PhD from Caltech. Second common, on, common phenomenon, fighting stereotypes. People felt they had to work twice as hard and be twice as good. They had no room for errors. They had to prove themselves. But at the same time, some people said they couldn't be too good. They downplayed their credentials so they could get along with their colleagues. So that was David B, who was an engineer in the Navy. 
uh, here he is talking about uh, his first job in the shipyards. To be likable, to be liftable, as they say, I, I had to be likable, and to be likable, I had to, I had to push down um, a lot of the brashness that I had. I had mm -hmm. to downplay the fact that I went to a good engineering school. As a matter of fact, I had to downplay that I even had an engineering degree. You know, mm -hmm. and I was going for a master's degree. I, I couldn't go and, and tell those folks that because that wouldn't allow me to be likable. And then, therefore, I wouldn't have access. And they would never trust me, right? Third common experience was outright discrimination, disparate treatment. So actually, one of the most frank accounts I heard uh, actually was from a white man that I interviewed, and he worked at an engineering firm, and here's what he saw. I never saw anyone say, no, we're not going to hire any women, or women are stupid or anything like that. I think it was less direct than that. But the women that did work there were more in administrative roles and whatnot. And when they tried to get ahead, they had a real tough time doing it, and if they wanted to do it, they had to leave the company. Another challenge, work life. Uh, many women, as I mentioned, reported a lot of uh, lack of sympathy for um, balancing work and uh, family obligations. For example, here's Terry H. She was a white woman and an engineer, environmental engineer, uh, who ended up leaving the field for a while to raise her kids. But I mean, a lot of the women I knew, I, it was just, you were kind of being treated like second class citizen. And I had some guy ask me, well, what do women want? And it was like something more than what they got maybe. <laughs> I mean, we're not gonna have people on this earth if women don't have children. So all these experiences added up to a pretty heavy psychic toll on many of the people I talked to. And it had some pretty severe concrete costs as well. Being the only one meant that you often didn't have a mentor or a colleague to help you succeed. Uh, people said they didn't hear about opportunities for promotion or they were passed over because they didn't have the right connections internally. In a 2019 survey, just 31% of Black professionals felt they had access to senior leaders versus nearly half of white men. So what this tells you is that the crisis in STEM diversity is a crisis of retention and advancement as it is of recruitment. Now, on the other side of the coin, experiences of workers in the majority. So by chance, I spoke to a group of white men who felt they'd been pretty successful in their careers. Uh, many of them mentioned mentors, professional networks. Many said they had access to on-the-job training, and many of them pretty much all of them, enjoyed the presumption that they belonged, that they were qualified for the job. No one challenged their credentials. I have a, one story, I think, that encapsulates this kind of experience. Uh, let's hear from Todd B. Todd is a state wildlife biologist, and uh, here he is talking about how he got his job at the agency where he is still today. And I was hired by what I call the old school people. I remember the job interview, the... Uh, guy who was actually doing the hiring took me outside. He said, let me see your pocket knife. And I thought that was kind of weird. I showed him my pocket knife. He said, hmm, it's good and sharp. He <laughs> said, well, he said, you got all the, the uh, intelligence I need. He said, I can train you to do the rest. He said, as far as I'm concerned, you're hired. 
and we had to go back in and we had the HR person sitting there and, you know, all of these uh, upper administration types that had to finish their interview, but the guy had already decided he was going to hire So some of the men I talked to did acknowledge that their identity probably gave them certain advantages, but there was still a pretty huge disconnect, as I mentioned before, in their perception of the kinds of barriers that people who didn't look like them faced. So there have been a number of surveys, including the one by AEI, that have reinforced, found that same phenomenon. For instance, just a quarter of whites think that Black workers face more obstacles to success in STEM than they do, and only a third of men say the same for women. On the other hand, 65% of Black professionals say that Black employees have to work harder to advance. Less than a third say they have as good a chance as whites to get any kind of job for which they might be qualified. Um, and this might actually be one of the bigger problems, the obstacles to solving the diversity problem in STEM. Workers in the majority don't necessarily believe that there's a problem. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the consensus among the white men I spoke with was that things were better now. When I asked why they thought there weren't many women or minorities in their offices, even now today, they attributed that to a lack of interest or choice or said they simply didn't know Others said they thought the problem was overblown uh, and that focusing on diversity was actually making things worse. So here's Todd uh, B, the wildlife biologist again. Um, his response, I think, was pretty typical of much of what I heard. When, when you have a fire and you let the fire burn down to nothing but an ember, when you start blowing on that ember, it's going to break out into a flame my opinion is if we stopped focusing on all the racism, if we stopped uh, mandating that, oh, you have to take this 10-hour online course for this and 10 hours, if, if we just let it die down, it would eventually go away. So what's to be done? Unfortunately, the culture is really hard to change through policy. I think my interview suggests a couple things that maybe don't work. Uh, number one, a minority and female recruitment does not work without equal attention to retention and advancement. It, it can't stop in the recruitment piece. Number two, as uh, Todd's uh, quote shows, sometimes so-called corporate diversity training could do more harm than good if it generates resentment versus fostering genuine empathy, understanding, and most importantly, behavioral change. So I don't want this to sound like an easy out, but the right solutions for culture may in fact be structural. The uh, women and minority workers I interviewed were much more educated than the average American. And even if not all of them were happy with where they were, they were actually pretty successful by typical standards. And they got to where they were because of the structures around them. You know, for instance, almost all of them had college educated parents and two parent families. Uh, many of the respondents attended uh, historically black colleges where they had mentors, they felt challenged, and they were not in the minority. Several of them worked for the government and for the military, where the system for promotion and pay was much more defined and arguably less subjective, which meant bias was a little bit more minimized as a factor. The problem, of course, is that these structures are still not even remotely sufficiently robust to produce the numbers of female and non-white STEM workers we need to nudge the culture of STEM in the right direction. We need more STEM teachers who are Black or Hispanic. We've got to invest in HBCUs. 
We need early access to work experience so that younger STEM workers have more opportunities for mentorship. The one thing that came through very clearly from these interviews is that careers aren't just about the work. They're about the relationships on the job, around the job, before the job, after the job. And until the culture of STEM does change, building resilient workers who succeed despite the hurdles they face might have to be the goal. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. That was a great overview of the book. Um, so before I turn this to Nicole, I'm really, and I, th I think this may form the core of our discussion, but I want to I want to lay it out there again because I think it's so important. There are certain things I think that we can do at a policy level. Government has, as I said in my opening, has done quite a lot of trying to promote STEM education for girls and for minorities and trying to fill the pipeline at one end, um, trying to or expand uh, the pipeline. Uh, and then it's, it, it's not really translating because we've got this other problem over here related to workplace culture. And I really like the way that you emphasized um, that work isn't just about skills, it's about relationships. And it's that relational piece that, that we have to get to. And, and you captured that conundrum of how do we talk? So uh, you don't have to answer this right now, but I want you to think about it, which is how do we talk about the challenge in such a way that uh, it doesn't reinforce the problem that we're trying to solve, um, that it doesn't generate that kind of resistance and uh, negative reaction. But, but this is really about trying to create a situation that is a win for everyone because we have more talent, more ideas, uh, and better results as, as a result of doing that. So anyway, think about that. You don't have to answer it right now, but uh, I do want to come back to it. Uh, our first respondent is Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, uh, who uh, at the Brookings Institution um, thinks about these issues a lot. Uh, in fact, I think she spends her day going from uh, a Zoom call to Zoom call to Zoom call to try to explain what her research is telling us uh, about this challenge. And so I'm really interested to hear um, about uh, about what you heard in, uh, Nicole, what you heard in Anne's presentation, where it resonates, maybe where it disconnects also from your own research. Yeah, no, well, first and foremost, thank you, Brent, for always having me on uh, these conversations. And thank you, Anne, for this wonderful research. I called your research when I was listening to you. And when I read it, it's like the STEM whispers, right? It's the people who no one listens to that are now going to be heard because you've actually brought life to the actual situation. So let me also say this. I felt that I was in your book too, because guess what? The experiences that you talked about, particularly for women of color, black women in particular, that actually has happened to me. So these experiences that you detail in the STEM field are really universal when it comes to how people of color, black and Latina people in particular, who are marginalized on the side of some of these um, very technical spaces, even in the space of PhDs like myself, experience a type of exclusion 
an omission when it comes to our participation in the workforce. So I just want to also tell you that this is not an unfamiliar um, uh, behaviors that you actually experience, that those of us with lived experiences in this space, these are actually real even in the 21st century. Uh, not in Brookings though, I have to tell you it's a different experience there, but, uh, but I have had that experience in the past. So what does your research say? I think to Brent's point, it says that as policymakers, we're trying to do the right thing, but we cannot figure this out because your research reveals a very important part. On the part of policymakers who are trying to advance computer science education for all, that's a plus. On the part of policymakers who are trying to ensure that we have equitable access to the type of research and development monies that uh, different colleges and universities actually have access to, that's a plus. On the policy side, we're trying to invest in historically black colleges and Hispanic serving institutions as a plus. But your research reveals something different. The policymakers cannot mitigate behavioral and cultural insensitivities that happen at the workplace. And that happen as people try to enter, uh, maintain themselves and be supported in these environments. And not too long ago, AI put out a report, which I actually still quote today, that suggested that even when people of color are in these workplaces, they just don't have the feeling of being, you know, fitted into that workplace seamlessly and they don't feel supported. So the question really becomes, how do you actually mitigate the, the risk and the consequences that come with people who in their authentic voice suggested that they don't feel welcomed? Because the reality of it is the last man that you had that got the job with a pocket knife that is the nature of how we get hired in society today. That's why I became a sociologist. Who you know matters, who hires you matters, and the extent to which they're familiar and comfortable with you, not just as a professional that may have gone through your own educational training, but you as a person who reminds them of their daughter, their son, their cousin, their aunt, someone who they're familiar with still gets in the way. And I'll just wrap up here because I want Lou to jump in. But I think that that part of your research is really interesting and it's very hard to toggle in a society that was built upon those basic racist assumptions. We cannot disentangle that without addressing, like you said, the structural concerns. But one thing that we can do, which I did like in your work because of the fact that we've said this over and over and over to policymakers, that when we find historically black colleges uh, that Lou's going to talk about it. We find students that come in those culturally efficacious environments that they actually do really well. They learn not only a sense of self that can actually withstand and remain resilient in workplaces that are hostile to them based on their background, but more importantly, they have a community that starts before they get into the workplace. A person from an HBCU comes in with a sense of pride and strength and confidence that I think can help override that. What we have found in the research, and you sort of identified it as well, the problem that HBCU students who graduate at the highest rate when it comes to STEM careers, they cannot find jobs. So that disconnect happens when they try to enter the marketplace. So Brent, to your question, there's no easy you know, answer for this. I think policymakers are doing the best that they can to actually try to address some of the explicit structural barriers. But what Anne's work is revealing that the reason that we're seeing the persistence and the systemic discrimination in the STEM fields is because of who we are as a country and the limited access to this marketplace that exists that starts way before they actually get into college. And so I'll stop there and go to Lou. But you know, I think that there are some institutions, Anne, that we should unpack a little bit more that you've identified that actually at least assist 
with the retention of, of black students within these workplaces where, you know, at least they have some resiliency that they come in with that allows them to actually persist and to have some success in those environments. So thank you, Nicole. I, uh, one thing, and then don't answer right now. I just want you to think about this, uh, which is, you know, it, it's, it's illegal in this country to discriminate in employment on the basis of race, on the basis of gender, on the basis of religion, on disability. We've got, we've, we've, we have laid out some pretty bright lines about what can and can't be done. And uh, I'm not saying that explicit racism doesn't, doesn't exist. I think it does exist, but I, but I think it's a lot rarer than it used to be. And I think that we've shifted into this, this area of uh, the interpersonal and the cultural that Anne's pointed to, I pointed to, you're pointing to it as well. Uh, and, um, and I'm really curious in your own research, what you've come across in terms of the way corporate America is trying to get its arms around this, um, this challenge, because I, I hear a lot about the efforts and I'd really like to hear your perspective. So think about that and we'll come back to it. Oh, Brad, you're not going to let me answer that. No, no, I got, we got to, we got to get the rest of the picture here. Okay. So let me come back in with that one. Cause you just put out a big question that you're going to make me wait. So I got to write it down. Okay. okay. <laughs> but I want, I want Lou to tell us about the rest of the pipeline um, uh, or part of the rest of the pipeline here, because he's working with uh, colleges and historically black colleges. And so uh, he's seen sort of the other end of this funnel that we're trying to get more people into, more diverse people, populations into so that we can get them educated and credentialed and in, then into careers. So Lou, why don't you take us through that? Thank you, Brent. Uh, first, let me just uh, let Anne know how much I enjoyed uh, her presentation. Um, I'd like to delve into that in just a bit. It's a pleasure to join you, Anne, Dr. Turner Lee, Brent, AEI, uh, and guests. Uh, thanks so much for, for having um, all of us here. Um, really quickly, specifically going back to Anne's presentation, you know, and I won't try to, uh, to elaborate further than, than what Dr. Turner Lee has done so, so eloquently, because I, I fully co-sign everything she absolutely said. Um, but you, you saw, viewers, that you know, in, in Anne's presentation, there were constant and consistent themes of there were uh, a lack of sense of bias, uh, particularly from, from, from white workers. Um, there were themes from women and minority STEM workers around um, social isolation. Um, and implicit within that, there are things such as, you know, code switching in the workplace, which is switching the way you speak, effectively switching who you are uh, to accommodate the, the, the scene in, in which you're working, that is emotionally exhausting. Imagine doing that day after day. Um, the psycho-emotional burdens of, of being a woman, of uh, being a minority in a STEM workplace where you don't feel seen um, and supported. Um, and Brent, you know, kind of like to your question going backwards, this isn't a conversation that obviously clearly won't be solved within the hour that we have here. Um, and it goes beyond much more than just uh, structural inequities from a policy perspective, um, and also structural inequities within the educational system, but also within community. 
Um, and so, you know, I come here from UNCF um, and, and, and two viewers and two guests where I hope to have a safe space where we can have an honest and candid conversation. This isn't, for me at least, a political conversation whatsoever. Um, the bread and butter of the work that I've done at UNCF um, for 11 years has been the promotion and the advancement of, of minority students, um, people of color through, through college uh, so they can attain a higher degree because we feel at UNCF that is the, the most effective way of guaranteeing economic security, not only for our country, but for specific populations as well. But Brent, to your question, there is no simple solution to this question of uh, what strategies are most effective in diversifying the SEM pipeline? But certainly research has provided different models and pathways that we can lean into. So for example, you know, Anne spoke about the, the output end of, of the STEM pipeline vis-a-vis um, -vis STEM workers. But equally as important is setting up strong mechanics at the front end, helping young students, for example, adopt a growth mindset. So this might look like a younger fifth or eighth grade version of ourselves thinking, wow, okay, you know, fractions or algebra or geometry is really hard, but I have a great supportive teacher and supportive classmates that can help me get my arms around it. I'm going to keep at this, as opposed to a fixed mindset, which looks like I'm terrible at math, I don't belong here. We, you know, we know that by supporting young students, particularly young, younger girls and minorities in K-12 with a growth mindset anchored, anchored with solid math and science education plus encouragement and support can often be the determinant of whether a young woman or minority student stays or falls out of the STEM pipeline. And this result can be amplified when you have you know, focused mentoring, for example, and spoke about mentoring in the workplace. You, we need mentoring way back further inside the pipeline. Um, also, the dismantling of, of gender stereotypes, um, an inclusive classroom uh, pedagogies involved. And I'll talk more about this later, but our Fund2 Foundation UNCF STEM Scholars Program has invested heavily into wraparound support services. In our STEM Scholars Program, we recruit 100 scholars each year, 50 young women and 50 young men at time of high school graduation all minorities. We currently have 500 total. The wraparound services, the wraparound support services model is the bread and butter of our program model and also of our success. So when UNCF worked with Fund2 Foundation in the design mapping phase years ago, we decided to decrease slightly the total amount of scholarship funding per scholar, but invest the difference into robust wraparound support services. So this means free tutoring in all of STEM courses by tutors that are black, because representation matters, and that also have terminal degrees. This also includes mentoring between older and younger scholars, providing an internship and career coach, also $5,000 stipend for research or internship. This looks like three to four virtual programs per month with top black scientists, programmers, doctors, engineers, those like Dr. Turnley, because seeing aspirational people is important and motivating. This means mental health and wellness programming. Because of all of this, we graduated our first cohort recently of 100 STEM scholars. Again, all African-American, 50 young women, 50 young men at 91% with a STEM degree. We would have been close to 100%, but COVID disrupted 
uh, with select courses not being offered on campuses at certain times of the year. So we've learned all that to say, Brent, you know, it's not just about education, it's so much more than that. It's about psychosocial emotional support, the ability for young women and minorities in STEM to feel supported, seen, and encouraged. That's terrific. I'm curious, um, Lou, you said a total of 500 uh, have taken part in uh, this, correct, this right. project. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. So uh, you probably have had some then who have graduated. Uh, you just said you've got graduates. How's the placement site going in terms of more education or whatever the pathway is? Yeah. Uh, so if I understand your, your question correctly, uh, Brent, so each cohort that comes through, so 100, 100 scholars, um, and they come in they come in at the front end of their college experience. So the moment they, they step foot as freshmen, they are UNCF, Bunchy Foundation, some scholars, we support them all the way through. Once they graduate, um, they're still connected in our network. Um, out of each cohort, roughly 50, 60% are bio-life science oriented, about 15% are tech oriented, and the difference made up between engineering, um, physics, uh, et cetera. Um, we have, I'd like to say around a 95% placement rate um, with full-time conversion. Uh, many of that um, being internships. I noticed in the survey report, there's, you know, this, this I think it was like 46% of, of, of workers surveyed, you know, wish that they had taken advantage more of, of internship experiences. We find that extremely in line with our experience as well. The competitive market landscape is getting tighter and tighter each year. And it's no mystery as to why each new cohort of students across the country um, you know, they face stressors and pressures that we just did not face. I'm speaking from a personal perspective, not organizationally, but times have changed. Um, and so that being said, we have to continue providing mentorship support, but also psycho-emotional as well. Yes. Uh, thank you very much. Great, uh, great response uh, and, and great presentation. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Uh, I, I guess one additional follow-on question on this. How do, how do kids find their way into your scholars program? Great question. We have inroads with school systems nationally. We have channel partners um, that include various charter schools. We are closely aligned and connected to public school systems across the country. Uh, UNCF, we are, Brent, uh, the second largest financial aid funder only to the federal government. Mm. We provide over $100 million each year to uh, minority students across the country every year. We've raised in that 75 years, $5 billion for distribution. This is the bread and butter of what we do. So everything that we're talking about now that Anne's reported on, that Dr. Turner Lee has sp spoken so eloquently about, this is the reason of why we're here. And again, this isn't a political motive. If we're looking at this from, you know, we can look at this from a national security lens in terms of STEM workers more inclusive of, of female minority workers. We can look at, look at this as an economic security imperative. Um, enriching the opportunity and equitable access for young women and minority uh, students in STEM is a win-win, period. Yeah, that's terrific. Okay, and um, I wanna give you a chance uh, to react to anything that you've heard before we just start plunging into other Go back to the questions I've already posed or, or pick up other threads uh, in this conversation. So what did you hear from your, your co-panelists? 
I, I want to thank both Lou and uh, Nicole for their terrific responses. And I think maybe all three of us are kind of on the same page as far as our own experiences that are being reflected here. And it, I have to say that when I was doing these interviews too, people, things that people were saying resonated with experiences in my own experience as well. And it was sometimes difficult to keep that distance as I was hearing story after story of um, what's happened. Um, two responses. I think absolutely, everyone is absolutely right that we're doing absolutely everything we can as far as policy and the pipeline. I mean, UNCF is doing incredible work. The burden though has been 100% on the side of those who are fighting for diversity. And part of what's happening is that the other 50% of the equation, the receiving end is not changing. And that leads us to your question, Brent, about how you change, change that disconnect. I mean, there is an obligation too on the, the uh, side of the majority to extend all of branch, a hand, something to you know, acknowledge part of what's going on here. And that simply isn't happening. How do you do that? Um, I don't know uh, is the short answer. And I think part of, since part of what's happening here, Ren, is something you alluded to about people's perception of what racism is. Uh, people think, I think, that racism still is about explicit bias and about individual acts of behavior that are considered absolutely reprehensible today. People do not see or choose not to see the invisible, systemic, unconscious things that are happening around them about which they either have no awareness or they don't have the means to control what's going on. Um, a lot of what I saw from the interviews was not so much uh, overt discrimination sometimes as just people being ignored or being not included in opportunities, which has the same substantive effect as discriminating against someone. But from the person doing the excluding, that was not so bad, <laughs> for lack of a better way to, to uh, describe that behavior. And so it's not seen as behavior that smacks of anything other than I'm helping out someone who maybe looks like me or reminds me of me, but it's not a deliberate exclusion of someone else. And I don't know how that changes other than perhaps we get some white male leaders in there to model the kind of behavior that everyone needs to, to show at the workplace. But I welcome any other ideas that the panelists have about yeah. how you make that connection. Yeah, if we had, I mean, I know that's an impossible question to answer, um, but I, I do think it bears a lot of thinking about, um, you know, as I was reflecting on all of the, the conversation, you know, we're, the way our minds work, we like to divide things into halves, you know, it's, it's structural and it's cultural, you know. And in fact, of course, those are very porous ideas um, that one of the ways of changing culture is to change structure. And one of the ways that structure changes is when culture changes. Um, you know, when there are more people, when there are more uh, people, women and minorities in these fields, that itself is going to change culture, right? And that's also going to change the uh, the sense of opportunity at the other end of the pipeline for people who think I could do that too. Um, so I think it, it's just a very, um, 
it's a it's a conundrum, but I think it's one that we really have to think about in large part, especially in STEM, right? Because STEM and um, you know high tech, these are extremely influential fields. It's not just the money, right? It's not just the job opportunities. It's the way that that these institutions shape what happens. And as we've seen in the past, there's been these kind of embarrassing incidents that you kind of have to just chalk up to the fact that there was nobody there to ask the question uh, about the product that was being developed uh, and whether it was um, open to uh, a broad segment of society, uh, the, uh, the broadest segment of society. So uh, I'm with you on the, on the challenge. So Brent, can I can I jump in though a little yes, bit? Yes, please. Because I, I honestly I I wanted to say this I respectfully I don't think it's a conundrum. I think we actually know what the fact is. The fact is that we have uh, in your report of last year kind of indicated this as well. The fact is, is that we have structurally inefficient schools that are not generating the type of STEM workforce that they should because they don't have the resources to not only give the students the type of devices needed to be successful in these fields, because it's hard to learn something you don't have if you don't have technology in your schools. But more importantly, um, and I love the way uh, Lou and Anne have framed this, we have treated this whole um, um, acceptance of math and science as, as somewhat exclusive. Um, I found this nuance in the report to be really interesting. That we're not talking about when it comes to STEM achievers, low-income people in per se, we're talking about parents that actually invested in their child's ability to take other classes or to be very, uh, have tutors, black parents, Latino parents that are investing in their child's trajectory for STEM. So this has become a very class sensitive area that unfortunately has a disproportionate impact on what community you are raised in or the type of education that your parents have. And that's a very nuanced deal. I mean, as a black person, you know, I remember growing up and my mother used to tell myself, despite my father being an architect, that she wasn't good in math. And I actually took that with me as one of my cultural attributes, that math was not my subject. With my own kids, I actually tried to not tell them that they weren't good at math, but a public school teacher told them they weren't good at math. And that actually changed the trajectory in which they actually um, wanted to pursue the subject until recently my son is like, hey, I love statistics because it took a mentor, a teacher or somebody that was confident enough to entrust his ability. So I do think that structurally and behaviorally, these things do combine because you start out with structural conditions that are not necessarily facilitating the environment for students of color to achieve in this space. But then you also have the overlay of certain behaviors, which can be managed by parents who learn how to advocate on behalf of their children to sort of stop that noise. But I think most importantly to your other question, though, when you come into the corporate setting, it does matter who you hire, because research tells us that people of color in leadership positions reach down and they do exactly what the man with the pocket knife guy, he got hired. They bring in people who look like them. It's no secret in the area of community businesses, minority-owned businesses tend to hire people of color. There's also a catalyst that when you see other people around you, you form bonds and you have the support network that allows you to go into a space where you don't feel like you're the only one. So corporations who don't quite understand that, I think it's really interesting. And then I think to Anne's point, which we sort of dismissed, you need a disruptor. Who in the organization is gonna disrupt the status quo? 
and actually encourage the type of recruitment and retention of people who look very different than the predominant workforce. And that's why I think, you know, one thing that we often miss in these conversations, which I'd love to hear from Anne if she looked at that, that's where ecosystem building comes into play. Uh, there are assets like the UNCF, the Black Data Processing Association, the Hispanic Heritage Foundation, the Inroads Program, the Center for Gender Equity and STEM for Women and Girls of Color. Uh, I can go on and on. Organizations that are committed to the success of Black professionals in these spaces, from education to you know, management potential. And the extent to which you actually place students in those environments, but more importantly, when HR professionals at tech companies tell me I can't find anybody, the first thing that I do is direct them to these organizations whose job it is to actually break uh, some of the unconscious and explicit biases that embed the corporation in these spaces. So I just had to, I had to put that out there because I think we can't shake our head because we kind of know what to do, <laughs> uh, but you have to have the courage to want to do it. And I think the STEM whisperer conversations that Anne put out there, at least for me, should sensitize people to the reality of what happens behind the water cooler when you're not necessarily in the same room with those decision makers. And corporations that'll think that that language and behavior is something that they should actually uh, maintain are never gonna be successful in a diverse marketplace. And that's why they land up on the front page of the newspaper because they don't understand that those conversations are basically what's creating the type of sores that exist within their own companies when it comes to these types of conversations. Uh, so, but I, I'm curious, uh, when you look out there into the world, who do you see that, um, who do you see that's in the corporate, on the corporate side, who you think is doing a really good job? Uh, there has to be somebody out there who's, who's doing a good job on this. Who do you see is doing a good job and what, what does that look like um, in terms of specific practices? Yeah, Lou, I'm going to bounce it to you because, you know, I can talk in this space, but I know with UNCF, you are feeding students to the corporations. Am I correct? Yes. Uh, Brent, if it's okay with you, I kind of, sure. I'd like to revisit, um, you know, what Dr. Turner Lee just said, because it was, it was a word and I just have to riff off it because the work, the work that we do at UNCF, and specifically our, our STEM scholars program, I can help add, you know, I can humanize, I can contextualize what Dr. Turnley is articulating around specific structural inequities that exist within student populations that, you know, your viewers might not be aware of. So let me give you an example. So during COVID, Brent, um, this is spring of March 2020, all of a sudden you have everyone leaving their college campuses within a matter of days. What we didn't anticipate, Brent, was within two weeks, we had dozens of scholars reaching out to us, confiding in us that they didn't have technology. They were utilizing their campus lab resources to do everything from coding to writing. They didn't own physical digital assets. So when they went home because of COVID, that just highlighted to us this wide discrepancy that specific student populations face, specifically minority populations. They didn't have Wi-Fi, they didn't have technology. So what we had to do, and bless her heart, the executive director of Fund2 Foundation, we had to go to her, Linda Wilson, and say, Linda, this is a situation we're facing. Here's our recommendation. We wanna, op we wanna open up a separate technology fund, reallocate resources, 
and allows students to apply for a laptop or a router or Wi-Fi or what you need. And in two weeks, all the student has to do is provide a receipt to us. That's just one example of what's actually happening on the ground. Another example is we had to hold a virtual program to help our minority scholars, many of whom, for example, are at Ivy League institutions. Um, they returned home during COVID quarantine to multi-generational households. You have three or four younger brothers and sisters. You're the eldest sibling. You have mom and dad, or perhaps a single parent who's working two or three jobs to make ends meet. And you have older grandparents. So on top of the stressors of coming home from campus, possibly bringing COVID and possibly killing your grandparents and your parents not being there, you are now the parent, you're replacing your parent as, as the individual now tasked to oversee all of your younger siblings, making sure they're doing their work. All that to say, our scholars weren't even uh, getting to their schoolwork until 11 p.m. at night. And they were studying until 4 a.m. And this happened for so many weeks where so many of them had come to us for advice, where we gathered them, we brought our, our tutors I spoke about earlier, who are actually many faculty members at various institutions, specifically HBCUs across the country, to help them craft language and conversation to, to their professors, many of whom are Caucasian, because there just exists a power dynamic that our young Black students, you know, face. And we had to coach them effectively on either writing an email or having a Zoom call and sharing and being vulnerable about what their experiences were at home so that their professor could understand how hopefully provide some flexibility. And the reason why I share that, Brent, is because I'm hoping to humanize some of the experiences that we're talking about on a policy level. Yeah. These are 17-year-old students to 21-year-old students, and they deserve the best shot in life, as do all of us. But I think it's also important to note some of the challenges and obstacles that they just face that folks like that, that look like me don't face, or you, Brent. Um, so I just want to highlight that to add some context to the conversation that we're having. Yeah. And I'm so sorry, Dr. Turnley, I totally forgot the question that Brent asked. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about the uh, uh, best practices on the corporate side that you, that you may have seen in terms of uh, being open and uh, inclusive in their hiring practices. Um, so great question, Brent. You know, um, I think within UNCF, you know, we, we've, we've supported thousands of students each year, many of them in STEM fields, uh, specifically for my program, for those that are out. Uh, and alumni and working, you know, we, we survey them quite actively and they're quite responsive. Unfortunately, many of our female identifying alumni um, and workers in STEM careers uh, don't feel like they have mentors in, the, in, in their companies um, to ask questions and to learn more about their career path or even have a clear line of sight uh, for upward mobility um, and spoke about that or even to have someone to turn to for guidance when they're feeling lost. Um, again, we've kept in very close touch with our alums. Many of them are top companies in Silicon Valley, uh, top research labs in the country, engineers at Fortune 10 companies, barriers to success in the workforce as evidenced by surveys uh, on our end, lean towards not feeling seen, heard or supported. And that's why you have companies in the past few years now investing millions 
you know, into, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, DEI, but DEI is so much more than just, you know, investing in recruiting. It's what you're doing once you've converted that recruit into a full-time employee, right? They're more than just a data point to report out on how you're doing diversity. The questions are around like, you know, how are you, the company, ensuring that these employees are being set up for success, right? Like what pathways of, of discovery and exposure are in place to help young women and minorities succeed? Do they know from day one that they have a mentor that might look like them? You know, how is your, your employee resource group, your ERG involved um, as a platform for success? So it's, again, Brent, I, I hate to say this, but there's no simple solution. It is mm -hmm. such a complex model that has to be revisited on a daily basis and tweaked and evolved. And it's an honest conversation that we all have to have. And we have to have these very difficult conversations in order to move forward. We, uh, we just, uh, I think we've got one more episode in my, on my podcast with a group uh, up in New York called First Workings that really focuses on communities of color in New York City. Uh, and it's all about what you and Dr. Lee and, and Anne have talked about here in terms of, it's, you know, it's not just the job, it's not just the skills and the job, but it is how we connect people relationally inside the business, right? So they work in finance and healthcare and media in New York. Those are the kind of the sectors that they focus on, but um, really, you know, to connect kids to relationships that are durable uh, and will uh, not just for the duration of their, of their internship, but they, they start in high school, most go on to college. And there's this um, ongoing exchange really between um, the, the kids and the mentors uh, to, to help with that acclimation and, uh, and translation sometimes that needs to occur. Um, so I, I yeah, yeah, I'm I'm sold on the social nature of work. Work is mainly a social activity and secondarily an economic activity. Well, and the economics is an outgrowth of the social behavior of work. And so we need we need to really be thinking um, for those who are, you know, on the margins here um, about the kinds of connections that are going to make that possible. So I, Nicole, you you. You look like you needed to say something. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I, do. <laughs> I love these conversations. I like the way uh, Lou framed it because for people who are listening, these are safe spaces to have really hard conversations. So again, uh, kudos to Anne for making these conversations happen. Listen, I think that's part of the problem in terms of the social nature of work. And I'll tell you why. I, mean, I think in lucrative careers like STEM and even in corporate America generally, it's more driven by social. And that is actually some of the reasons why we have some of the barriers that actually show up um, when it comes to whether or not I'm judged based on the quality of my work or the extent to which I show up at eight o'clock and I leave at five. You know, the, the assumptions that we make, for example, I learned this very early on as a manager for single employees. Well, you don't have any kids. Why can't you stay past five o'clock? It's similar to the assumptions that we make for uh, people who come from different orientations than ourselves 
Why is it that they don't go to the after work happy hour? Why is it that they don't um, find themselves sitting at the lunch table with everybody else? Beverly Tatum wrote about why are all the black kids sitting together when she spoke about that um, in her experiences with HBCUs or uh, young people that go into predominantly white environments, excuse me. You know, part of the reason is the social aspect matters to particular communities when they associate that with what you said, economic capital and some type of social value. The challenge that we're experiencing in the STEM field, which I know is very lucrative, is that you just can't show up. I was in a program when I was in college for Procter & Gamble, where they actually put minority students through a whole summer of understanding their business model. And I remember not wanting to go to the baseball game, right? But, I, but my other skills, because as you probably figured out, I can talk and I'm pretty social, helped me get through it. In a career like STEM though, where you have to have a, stu a student who is very much attuned to having interest in science, technology, engineering, and math, and the arts, it takes on a different character. Because what I feel is that as Anne's uh, research pointed out, these young people work hard <laughs> to get the basics right. And then when they get in, they don't do as well when it comes to people's interpretation around their lived experiences. And to me, that is so hard to mitigate through policy. It doesn't necessarily, as we've said, fall into the discrimination line that someone's being excluded, but it makes it a very hard place to work for these young people who want to be as good as everybody else. Black person goes to school and college and the church sends them with some money and this one saying, do better than everybody else because you have to work twice as hard. Mm -hmm. I think we need to debunk and unpack why we have allowed that to exist. Mm -hmm. We don't place diversity, this is the last thing I'll say, as any type of metric for success in corporate leadership. There's nothing that says how many people you recruited and hired and supported and actually mentored is a way to assess whether or not you're going to get a merit compensation. We don't tie that even though we know, particularly tech companies, that you're better for it when you have more diverse work groups. So I, you know, I think at the end of the day, you know, I'm just commenting, I think the social part is somewhat what has really amused me over the years because yeah. it's harder to no, discern, I, I, you know, the social versus what is being expected when you actually get to the workplace. And, and I, that's not, it's not exactly what I'm talking about. I, I, I mean, know, I just had the, to make sure people. The, <laughs> I'm not talking about, you know, make sure that you go to all the happy hours. Um, I'm, you know, I'm talking about, uh, you know, that work as an activity grows out of our social nature uh, and it's unavoidable, <laughs> you know, that, that that aspect of work is unavoidable. So then the question is for uh, individuals uh, and populations that, you know, they have a hard time penetrating that, you know, that's the majority, the majority sort of mode of socialization doesn't resonate, you know, so how, how do you then overcome that? And, um, you know, I hear, I hear what you're saying. I hear what Anne's saying too, about, you know, the burden here can't be all on the individual, you know, it's got to be, it's got to be more than that. It's got to be, uh, uh, something that corporate culture takes on to try to pull these things closer together uh, and and get some change on both sides. So, um, 
Well, yeah. and Brett, yeah, if I could, if I could just add though, and that's how that's why I think you know uh, I was sort of laughing at ants. Um, the guy who said I pulled out my pocket knife, and then the guy realized I was sharp on both ends. Have a black male do that? Who's applying? He'd probably have security escort him out the building. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've got issues like that that are embedded in the nature of relationships. You know, Mark Granovetter, as a sociologist, always said that the nature of work is who you know. It's the relationships. So we get all that, and we and I know Lou does this. Because a lot of organizations I also mentioned, they actually spend time on mentoring and how to actually navigate in these spaces and how to manage code switching. Mm -hmm. But I think most importantly, and again, it goes back to it so we don't have a pessimistic conversation. We have to realize that this population is going to be a a minority-majority population. In other words, people look like you, Brent, unfortunately, are going to be the minority. Okay, and the people look like the rest of us on this call are going to be the majority. What that means is businesses want to be able to appeal better to those populations. And particularly the tech industry, as I say, as you know, my work on AI, you don't want to be on the front page of the newspaper because you just did some stuff that could have been solved by more inclusive work groups. Mm -hmm. I think until we get folks to kind of understand from a, a general business environment that this is actually better for you. Companies like uh, Nike and others in other sectors that have understood the value of having diverse representation has actually benefited them. I do again, go back to, and again, I'd be curious to hear from Lou or Ann, that there is this culture of, um, of, of, of domination or power that suggests that when you start getting into these very lucrative spaces that you just can't find people in the data sciences and the computer sciences and engineers, which makes it even more hard for us to penetrate because now people assume you're adding on another layer. Why can't corporations take a student that has a four year liberal arts degree and then invest in their education to become an engineer if that's what the student or the graduate wants to do? Um, Like I said with my son, High school was sort of a place where he didn't like math, but when he went to college, it's now psychology is an interest of his, which requires math. Mm -hmm. I think we have to just think differently about the role that employers play in the intervention process. Coding a teenager doesn't necessarily mean in five years that kids are going to come work at your company. But if you have an enthusiastic young person, an internship, like Lou said, maybe a, a work trial, an experiential thing, I tell people all the time, Putting young people in the position to get excited about that actually sometimes works out to be a better investment for both the company and the student because you start in a space where they're able to see what is expected of me in these environments. And you're investing. So you want your investment to be a good return as well. So I'm not in the space that Lou does in terms of working with students, but I I don't see enough of that where there's this reciprocity between companies and, and students or early professionals in ways that it's seen as a return on both sides. Yeah. Um, great comments. Uh, I want to flip this back to Anne because she's our featured speaker today. Uh, and uh, she may have some thoughts on some of the things she's heard or something else that she wanted to get into. And then we've got a couple, if, if not, we've got a couple questions from the audience um, that I want to throw out there as well. So Anne. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. So actually, I want to respond to your question, uh, Brent, about who is doing a good job on and on, on diversity. And uh, one company I want to throw out there actually is IBM. And they're not looking at diversity necessarily as headcount or representation. But the thing that I think I'm most impressed by what they're doing recently is 
looking at hiring people who don't necessarily have that four-year degree. They're being much more inclusive about looking at skills. And that I think has really opened the door for different kinds of people to come in who maybe would not have come in the door otherwise because they've begun to turn away from kind of the elite credentialism that a lot of the tech world has. So I think when we're having this conversation about what inclusiveness means, and Nicole made the point about class being a factor here, uh, I think corporations need to think a little bit differently about the structures that may inadvertently lead to exclusion and think about kind of outside the box solutions like IBM has about what are kind of the structural changes they can make in who they consider talented, the kind of talent pathways that they create uh, and who they bring into the organization that will have that effect of creating a much more inclusive workplace. Uh, so just wanted to right. add out there as well. Good. Okay, a uh, couple questions. Okay, so for Anne, uh, did, uh, did you find any variance in the STEM fields that some were more receptive to participation by women uh, than others? Um, for uh, the example that's being used in the question is say in physics or in computer science, or mm -hmm. uh, are, there, are there certain types of STEM fields that are more open than others? Yeah, actually, I do write about this in the report a little bit. There's quite a bit of occupational segregation uh, by, by gender within STEM fields. And I did talk to a, a couple of women who found their fields to be a little bit more welcoming than others did. Uh, one was in laboratory sciences, like the people who actually analyze lab samples to come into a lab. And the reason it was more welcoming for someone like her was because everybody was a woman. And so, but that field is less lucrative than some of the other fields that are dominated by men. So that's the trade-off that some people are facing. They can be in a field that seems to be more inclusive and more welcoming of who they are, but it may not pay as well as being an astrophysicist or um, some hard tech job that doesn't have quite the soft and fuzziness of psychology or some of these other fields where they are much more dominated by women. You can take a look at the BLS figures and see where are the women going, where are the men going? And there's quite a bit of sorting out. And again, it's all about the culture of the field and the relationships that are within it. As uh, both Lou and Nicole, have, the three of us have kind of said throughout this conversation, the four of us really. Yeah. Um, Lou, did you have any thoughts on this? Um, in terms of where your students, um, where your scholars wind up, are there certain fields that are, uh, that you feel like are more open, better able to integrate um, diverse populations? Great question, Brent. Um, it's changed uh, over the past few years. And the reason why I say it's changed is because uh, one, of, one of the elements that, that I work in this touches upon, Brent, what you mentioned, um, around commercial industry saying we can't, uh, or was Dr. Turner Lee saying we can't find, you know, talented young, you know, black uh, STEM students. Um, in 2015, uh, one of our uh, senior directors, Dr. Chad Womack, uh, created the HBC Innovation Summit. And this collectively, Brent, was a gathering of, through a competitive application process, bringing up to 150, 200 of the country's top computer science students, IT students from HBCUs to Silicon Valley, strictly for that reason. Saying, listen, all you Silicon Valley companies, you're telling us you can't find top talent. We're telling you, you're looking in all of the wrong places. You're going 
to Carnegie Mellon, you're going to all these other institutions, but you're, you're disregarding a lot of the smaller schools, um, you know, either, you know, PWIs or specifically HBCUs that produce the nation's top black talent. Um, and sure enough, when this began in 2015, it continues to this day, we have top 10, 14, you know, Fortune 10 companies, repeat uh, uh, partners come year after year to this summit to draw from this rich talent pool that we shared with them. And I remember, for, you know, the first, uh, second, third year when I, when I attended um, and was supporting the, the initiative, I kept having conversations uh, that were being essentially recycled over and over with different partners telling us, I cannot believe we've been looking all these wrong places. And the reason why I tell you that, Brent, is because from, from a, a corporate profit standpoint, they recognize instead of deploying recruiting teams across the country, which would take six months, they, they, they're now going to one event sponsored by UNCF where there's 200 top young black talent focused in IT and computer science and they're just pulling them left and right. Um, but to your actual question. Yeah, the, the question of sectors that seem right. to be more To your open. actual question, Brent, what we have recommended specifically in technology is be careful with some of the larger companies. Because what we've noticed is that oftentimes once they convert recruits into full-time employees, and we know this evidence by um, you know, surveying and personal conversations with, with alumni, they are kind of left alone. And they attend their first day and all of a sudden they're just left alone. And they're not supported. And meanwhile, you know, as Dr. Turner Lee said, everyone else is having lunch, but they were never asked. And so there's this culture of being felt like you are set up for failure. And the reason why we've advised them to begin exploring other, you know, elsewhere, maybe medium or smaller sized companies is because we feel like those are the companies that are really investing in top talent retention because they need to be focused from a profit level standpoint. It mm. makes sense for them mm. to not only bring in top diverse talent that represents you know, a cross section of the country, but to retain them. It's cheaper to retain the employee, to train them up than to go out and source and recruit. Does it make sense? Um, so that's one, that's one. Um, it's a little bit difficult for us for to have that same conversation around our students who are bio life science oriented. There are only so many research laboratories and that is such a structured pipeline that you know, it's, it's, it's a very set system that is a lot less malleable than the tech sector. Um, so all that to say, it's a constant conversation that we're having evidenced by data that we're gathering, collecting from our alumni that are allowing us to downstream recommend different strategies for our younger scholars who are preparing to graduate as they shift and mold. Um, so again, no clear answer. It is a fluid process. Again, data supported. Terrific. Good answer. Thank you. Um, Nicole, did you want to weigh in on that at all? No, I'm just shaking my head to Lou. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, he's right on. <laughs> all right, great. Um, so uh, next question. Uh, female workers often miss out on career progress or big projects when they decide to have children. How can companies equalize the treatment of men and women as to not discriminate against moms? Uh, and I, I, there's another secondary question there, but I'm not going to ask it because I think it answers itself. So I want to hear what you what you think. Yeah, I mean, that suite of policy solutions has been out there forever. Right. Um, 
paid leave um, for both men and women. Uh, I think that family friendly policies have to be actually gender neutral and gender inclusive because the more men you see taking advantage of family leave policies, it becomes normalized for everyone. Uh, that's part of what's going on here. Uh, the pandemic is ushered in remote work. That's actually helpful, probably for a lot of women who are trying to balance. Uh, I saw some an article the other day about that third shift that happens between seven and midnight. Um, I completely empathize with that, uh, but that is that kind of flexibility and the ability of employers to allow flexible schedules and look at the product and look at the performance of the worker versus the FaceTime. It's going to be in a, a very important. Uh, development, I think. And, but yeah, the, the policies are out there, but let's start with, let's start with paid leave. Yeah. And if, uh, can I add on to yeah. that as a, as a mother as well? Um, so I, I think the, what Anne is talking about, we definitely need the supportive policies of women in the workplace and families in the workplace and, you know, men who are interested in caring for elderly parents or, you know, paternity leave. We need all of that. That's like a separate conversation. But I, I also wanted to add to what Anne said, something that I think the pandemic particularly demonstrated for us, that we can actually have, you know, disaggregated workplaces. And guess what? We're still productive. Um, I don't know if you remember, Brent, we did that conversation on remote work. And mm -hmm. at, that was like at the height of the pandemic. You know, are we in remote work? And one of the panelists said, what we were in was not remote work. Yeah, you know, yeah. remote work was being able to go home, kind of, you know, tap into your commute computer, but not do what we're doing today, which are back-to-back -back meetings and making decisions that really matter, you know, and it was occasional, not every day. But one thing that we've learned, though, in the last two years is that you can actually do this remote thing in a way that still contributes to productivity. And so I think, and as I thought about it as a mother, um, these policies, hybrid work policies, I think is something that we should be looking at. Uh, at Brookings, we're being required to just come in one day a week, if at that, you know, just to give us a socialization, uh, which I think is very friendly to women. Flexible start and stop times. I think the structure of work has changed. So taking those lessons, I think is, is very meaningful. I think for people who say they cannot find people, actually leveraging these tools for women and people of color, there's no reason someone could say that I can't find anybody to work in Idaho when you now have remote options, particularly for tech companies, for people to be able to come in remotely and maybe fly out once or twice a week. I, I just think that we have to take advantage of the new technology that is being afforded so that women can participate in ways that are meaningful. I do agree with Anne, right? There's that third shift, but that third shift should not have to come at the cost of you know, either work or family. You need to have a balance of both. And so again, I hope that we take some of these pandemic um, uh, uh, habits that we've actually picked up and we bring that into the workplace to support family-friendly policies as well. Another thing that's worked well, I'll just put it out there too, is for employers to understand that you can have flexible work arrangements and that they can also have you work in places that they actually work through the HR requirements. For example, at Brookings, they're allowing us to work if you need to go take care of a family member or yourself in a state that's not Washington, D.C., as long as it's on the approved list. Again, the nature of work has changed, and it's important for us to be friendly for the purposes of gender inclusivity, but other folks with different needs. Yeah, that's really interesting, and and I I think we're in the I think we're in the early stages still of trying to negotiate this, uh, and I'm really encouraged by what I'm seeing just in terms of 
people being open to arrangements that they haven't been open to in the past and the way the market is driving that because it's, it is a tight labor market. And this is a, uh, this is something that um, employers can offer people that they want uh, on their teams is greater flexibility. Well, I, um, I think that's a good note for us to wrap up on. Uh, I really appreciate all of you. Uh, and thank you so much for the work on the book it, I know, because we had a couple coaching sessions while you were doing it, that this is not easy work to do, that these stories are difficult um, and uh, to hear and to process. And so I want to uh, thank you and honor you for that harder to quantify contribution, I think, that you've, that you've made here. Uh, uh, Nicole, always a pleasure. Just love having you on these panels. Lou, great to meet you and to know of your wonderful work. Um, with uh, our good friends over at UNCF and uh, wish you all the best and um, stay healthy and keep doing great work. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.